Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and many people don't know this about me, but I actually have deep Pennsylvania roots. Many of my friends know my obsession with Cleveland, Ohio, where I grew up, and the sports teams in particular there. But my family ties in Pennsylvania are actually extensive. My parents met in the city of uh, West Middlesex at the Church of God campground. We were part of the Church of God. My grandfather was a minister in Cleveland, and they would, they would have a national gathering every year in the summer in August at the campground. And it was such a tradition in the Black community that people owned cottages there, including my grandfather owned a, owned a cottage there. And this was back in the day, so we literally had a bucket of water you had to use to flush the toilet in the cottage there. My father is from Sharon, Pennsylvania, which is on the border of Ohio. We used to drive to see my other grandparents there on a regular basis. And my, my bio used to say Steve's greatest claim to fame is that he went to basketball camp with Michael Jordan which is true, and that took place at Robert Morris College in Western Pennsylvania, it was five-star basketball camp. So I am a Midwesterner overall with, you know, deep Ohio roots as well as Pennsylvania connections. And I think the juxtaposition of those and the place of Midwestern politics is really why I wanted to have this conversation today, because there's been a lot of debate about what do Democrats need to uh, do to win? Who do they need to get behind? What's the profile, the type of candidate that can lead the party to victory? And what are its prospects in a region such as the Midwest? It's in that context in general, as well as the particular candidate that uh, we're going to be talking to, we've heard a lot about for a long time, and super excited to have her on the pod. So we're very excited for this conversation. We're going to be talking with a real exciting rising star political leader within the state of Pennsylvania. And for that conversation, joined as always by my co-host, Charlene Chang. Charlene, have you ever been to Pennsylvania? And how are you? And do you want to introduce our guest? Hi, Steve. I have been to Pennsylvania. I grew up in New Jersey, so it is being neighbors. And I remember school trips and family trips to places like Philly and having like historical tours there and also Amish country. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So some really I have some really deep and wonderful memories of traveling there and visiting there in Pennsylvania uh, to Pennsylvania in my childhood, but also as an adult different kinds of uh, experiences there, including when we went to the convention uh, in 20, uh, 2016, no, right, 2016 right? Right, right, it was right. in Philadelphia. Philadelphia. That was probably mm-hmm. the last time I was there. And it was just a fan. It's a fantastic city and wonderful state. And so I am really, really looking forward to talking to our guest today. Our guest today is Summer Lee. Summer Lee is a Pennsylvania state representative for the 34th district, which is located in Southwest Pennsylvania. She is the first Black woman from Western Pennsylvania ever elected to the state legislature, and Summer Lee is a lifelong resident of the district she now represents, growing up in the North Braddock and Swissvale neighborhoods. She's been a longtime organizer, activist, and advocate for social justice. She graduated from Howard University School of Law and has worked for the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. She was also an organizer for the Pennsylvania Democratic Party during the 2016 presidential election. And before becoming a state rep, she organized to ensure fair wages and the right to unionize for fast food workers. Now in the race to replace retiring Democratic Rep Mike Doyle, Summer is running to be the first Black woman representative from Pennsylvania to serve in the U.S. House of Representatives. The primaries in Pennsylvania will be taking place next Tuesday, May 17th. And we're just really excited to get a chance to talk to her, especially since we can only imagine how busy she is right now. 
since her primary is next week. Welcome, Summer, and thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's good to be with you all. Um, we appreciate you making the time. The other part I left out about the the Pennsylvania roots is that uh, you know I, the, I I realized the longest standing association I have outside of my family is with the Cleveland Browns football team. My dad got season tickets when I turned seven years old, and the Browns Pits, rivalry with the Pittsburgh Steelers is very <laughs> intense. People used to burn the pennant of the Steelers in the parking lot. There'd be fights at the game. So uh, one of my friends, uh, Ludovic Blaine's previous podcast guest, is a, for some reason, although he's from Pennsylvania, is a big Pittsburgh Steelers fan. So it's a tribute to our belief in you that I'm overcoming that to have you on the podcast. <laughs> Very big of you. <laughs> we'll see oh, I see you, I, you know what? I see Cleveland Browns coming up in the game. I am, I am a Steelers fan. And I'm happy to be on this side of the rivalry, but I see and acknowledge the work you all have been putting in these years. Well, don't, don't get me started <laughs> on the new quarterback and the 22 uh, sexual harassment charges against him. So that's a topic for a whole yeah, other conversation. Me about it. <laughs> Another podcast. Uh, Steve, giving the listeners some context, because you had sh- you know shared with me some context, and I thought it was fascinating, which is basically the context for this year's Pennsylvania elections as a whole and why these elections are important to people across the country, because I don't think many people, uh, to be honest, are tuned in to these you know, Pennsylvania elections this year. Yeah, in a lot of ways, Pennsylvania has been kind of a Rorschach test for the Democratic Party around who they should be, what they should look like, what the identity should be, who their leaders should be in terms of what's necessary to win. And that was, that was kind of the essence of Joe Biden's you know, persona um, originally was supposed to, you know, uh, from Scranton, Pennsylvania, working class Joe, you can get the working class white voters with that type of an approach. And that really has been what people have put up in Pennsylvania, right? So a few years ago, uh, Connor Lamb ran for an open seat for uh, Congress in the Pittsburgh, greater Pittsburgh region. And he's a, he's a classic He's a former Marine, white guy, and he really was a poster child for the modern white, white male candidates. And he's actually running for Senate now. That'll also play. There's also a gay black man running as well as a progressive white guy. So that'll be a kind of playing stuff out there. And then in summer's race as well, right? I mean, you have her opponent. Uh, I was originally going to say literally an old white male. I couldn't find out his exact age, but I started to get worried it was close enough to my age. I wasn't going to call him old, but he is literally an older white man. And Summer is a young black woman. And, and you've had lots of opposition. I think it's important people understand the, the, the context. This is a very democratic seat. Whoever wins the primary is likely to be the new rep. More than a million dollars of money has come in against Summer, attacking her on various, you know, two left and, you know, against, you know, Israel or whatnot. And so it's a manifestation of this dynamic, right, where pe- people will be like, oh, it's not that we're against black women. We just don't like this black woman. Mm. And then it winds up being, or that one over there, or that other one. And so you end up with a party that's still dominated by white men whose experience is disconnected from the majority of the party and from the majority of people in the country. So the question I have for you, Summer, is I do think that this is very you know, important, I mean, beyond symbolic, important. But there's a very, very strong view that Democrats need to put forward moderate white men. And that's the only way that we can win in the Midwest more broadly in a place like Pennsylvania in particular. So why do you, as an unapologetically progressive black woman, younger black woman, think that you can win in a state where the conventional wisdom says you got to be an older, moderate white man? 
Yeah, I think that, you know, that approach, I think, is so incredibly short-sighted. And I think that those of us who recognize that our need is not just to win right now, but to win in the long term, right, to win for these populations, for people, recognize that now is the time to be laying that groundwork. I think that, and I know that we can win because we've done it, right? This is... I actually, it's funny enough, you mentioned Connor Lamb. I was actually running for the first time. I was the first time candidate at the same time he was. And he was running right outside of my district in the neighboring communities. And we were running at the same time as what some people consider two, you know, polar opposites when it comes to ideology, when it comes to politics, and when it comes to policies. But we were able to galvanize people, multiracial, multi-generation. I'm already in a district that's pretty diverse, right? It's majority white majority suburban, and yet we've been able to increase turnout by a lot, right? We've been able to expand the electorate in ways that we've not been able to see. And that is the coalition tapping into young voters, black and brown voters, progressives, liberals around this region has been a winning strategy for us, not just with, you know, races like mine, but the races we've done since them in this region to really start to challenge that narrative that we can only ever run, you know, rich white men. Let's Let's talk about white people for a second, right? <laughs> in terms of like they, well, one of the things, arguments I was making around the Connor Lamb piece is that there's a uh, faulty analysis people make when they say, oh, you have to get this moderate person because, you know, Trump won in this district or et cetera. But I feel there's a lack of appreciation for progressive whites and how there actually is a solid base of whites who are progressive. And that that's, I think, something that gets overlooked a lot. But I'm very curious about what your experience was when you ran for the state house in that district engaging with uh, white voters and what did you find they were looking for and how were you able to connect with them yeah you know it was it was actually it was really interesting because like thinking about how kind of diverse most districts particularly where we have you know, progressive black folks running is usually majority black districts and this wasn't. So it was really was an experiment, right? Could we go onto doors and different parts of this community, there's a part of different parts of this district and talk about the same things. And we actually really did, right? I actually had the only ward in the city of Pittsburgh that went for Trump both times. And we went there too. And we still talked about a living wage and unions, right? We still talked about, you know, environmental justice, because we had a fracking proposal at that very time that I was running, you know, right in my neighborhood. And we were able to galvanize people around education, environmental justice, and and economic justice, working rights, working power, and everywhere. It resonated everywhere with white folks uh, across the ideological spectrum, actually. And the Democratic Party needs to understand that. We need to understand it very quickly, because we are leaving on the table so many kind of free throws, as I heard one person explain it, right? These are free throws that we're missing because we are not tapping into our expanded base that we need. And our race really demonstrated that we can find those commonalities. People all over want the same basic rights and the same basic access and equity. Um, so Summer, you, you have a really powerful campaign video that I just loved, and it's on your website. And you talk about the glory days of Braddock, again, this Braddock, Pennsylvania, which was last century. It was a thriving industrial town, a booming steel town. And I did a little research and apparently some 20,000 people used to live there at its height in 19, around 1920. And today there are apparently only 2,000 people living there, maybe not even. And so for those of you who don't know, Braddock is located in the eastern suburbs of Pittsburgh. And Summer, you share in your video that sadly that Braddock boomtown is not the Braddock that you grew up in. You can just 
tell us a little bit about that and also why you're so committed to representing places like Braddock. Yeah, Braddock is this town that has so much such a rich history, right? It's, it's one of those places that, you know, you learn about it in your history books, even if you're not able to, you know, place it geographically. And you're, you're right, you know, when it was, when there were 20,000 folks in the 20s there, it was more densely populated, right, than Manhattan. So there was this time wow. where, you know, there were so many firsts, right? The first AMP, right? Theaters and, you know, furniture stores and all of these different businesses that just, um, that lined this main, you know, business street and so many workers from so many different backgrounds. But by the time, you know, I was growing up, what we were left with is pollution, right? We were mm. left with the smell of the sulfur, right? That we kind of joked and maybe not so much joke, talked about how it smelled like rotten eggs, you know, blight. Right. All of these buildings, the main street has just I used to say it looked like a ghost town and there was many things. Right. It was the industry that collapsed that 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 left these communities. Then it was, you know, folks who were able to get out of it and move to other places where they were not sitting right, you know, in the middle of that pollution. And then also after that was, you know, the war on drugs. It was, you know, you know, drug epidemics that went through. So it was like a one two punch in this community. But there are people there who are still there. Right. They're still there in building. There are so many people who have so much pride. Everywhere I went when I started campaigning my first time, I would find folks from Braddock and they love that community so much, but they just didn't feel they could stay there because there weren't opportunities for them. So it's, it's, it's a home, right? It's home. It's a community. I believe that just because black and brown communities are divested doesn't mean that those folks who are still in it don't deserve to have thriving communities for themselves. They shouldn't have to go elsewhere, you know, to find those things that they need to find a sort of lifestyle that they want. And I think it's more representative, not just a Braddock, right? There are Braddocks everywhere. Mm-hmm. All over this country, there are communities like that where people have such pride, even as they live in despair, right? And divestment. And they just want their communities to be, you know, built up with them in mind. I'm just so glad to, you know, get your insight on it because I, I did find it, you really, convey, well, in the video really conveyed the pride of the people who do live there. And I, I just, just got really moved and recommend people checking out the video. Wanted to quickly ask you about the neighborhood that you grew up in, Swissvale, was removed from your district during the redistricting process. And I have a feeling you have thoughts on that. <laughs> yeah. You know, this is it's so, it, it's so funny because those maps came out so late that it was almost absurd, right? We were only getting maps in February of this year. So folks who are running for office, knowing that we had a May primary, we didn't know where our districts, what our districts would look like until February. But now it feels like that was like so long ago. But yeah, so my community, Swissvale, you know, it's the only municipal split in the county. And my voting precinct is the only precinct level split. So they literally split, you know, my block. The next block is in the district. You turn the corner, and that block is in a district and one block next to it is my mom's house, you know, where I used to live. So, yeah, it was <laughs> it was it was interesting. <laughs> Very interesting. Wow. Talk about and, one hurdle after another. You know, uh, yeah, that's what, and, you know, when I think about it, they've you know, they've thrown so much at us. Right. Because we're all attempting to build this more reflective democracy mm-hmm. and it really just shines a light on the barriers that black and brown and other marginalized candidates have to getting into office, right? And to building power for working class folks. Um, And that was just one of them. And that was honestly, that was the better option we had because they really wanted to split the city of Pittsburgh in half. 
split black communities in half in a way that would have disenfranchised black communities and stopped progressives, right? Stopped more liberal folks from being able to build power and have their own representative. And I think that that brings us back to the Democratic Party's idea of who should be representing us. We'd rather have, you know, communities that are split in half where we can support multiple, you know, moderate candidates, usually white men, but never allow those communities that are blue, deeply blue, to have the representation that is more reflective of their own values. It's interesting you're talking about, you know, Braddock and then uh, being this industrial area. I mean, we were joking about the football team being called the Steelers. I mean, they're called the Steelers because that was a steel town and, and, and that was the industry for a long time. So that's really very much part of the part of the identity. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your decision to get into politics. Like, what was that journey like? I think one of the things we're seeing this year, finally, after 400 plus years in this country, is that there's some level of inspiration and excitement about, we saw it around the Supreme Court, Justice Tanji Jackson, people looking at these Black women contesting for and ascending to positions of leadership, right? And so I think a lot of people want to know what was the journey? What was the decision point? What went into the calculus to get into politics um, in the first place? Oh my goodness. Yeah. It was, I think it's probably not a familiar story for people who are in politics, but I think it's a growing story of people who are now getting into, who are kind of finding their way more like I did. You know, I wasn't somebody who was groomed for politics. It wasn't something that I had ever considered in my life. There really was no blueprint. You, you mentioned, and when we mentioned that I was the first black woman from Western Pennsylvania, that's real. You know, there was no one else who had been able to achieve that particular goal of, of running. There were other people who had run, but never gotten far, never gotten the support that they would need to run. So when I ran, um, particularly in this district, right, a, a majority white district, majority suburban to run, you know, I kind of came about it from organizing other people. I wanted to find other people, spe specifically black women, right, to run for office because we had different issues. And I really believe that if we have folks who reflected our values, who look like us, who sounded like us, right, who navigate a society like us in office, offering our perspectives, then we can start to create solutions, right, from our own communities, right? We can start to send our own representatives to the system instead of the other way around, right? The system sending us its representatives. And it was really this endeavor to flip that around when, you know, it started to come become clear to me that this was a pathway that I should take myself. Uh, so when I first ran, I was explicitly running to talk about cyclical inequality and racism, right? To talk about how communities like mine have this cycle, right? If you're poor, you're black, you're more likely to live in communities, you know, with an environmental hazard like mine. Uh, those communities are more likely to be in, in areas where the school district is chronically underfunded like mine, right? Lack of jobs, there are no job centers, but lack of transportation, right? Food and medical deserts, like I was seeing those cycles and thinking, why aren't politicians talking about it that way? So when I first ran, that was why, because I wanted to talk about cyclical racism, talk about the experiences and how important it is to have the perspectives of people with lived experience in office. We were, we were talking before we, we started about having gone to law school, whether or not practicing law and choosing a different path. Can you talk a little bit about that journey? Like, why did you decide to go to law school? And then why did you decide to the, do the things you did after leaving law school? And it's funny because notice I didn't even mention, I, didn't, I don't mention law school ever. Even when I talk about the lived experiences, I do have a law degree. I chose not to run centering that. 
because it's a qualification, but it was not the qualification in my. Well, let me ask you that because I am a lawyer. Yeah. Technically. Um, me too, technically. <laughs> and, uh, no, I practiced for a while, but that's on that point. I quite my friends used to laugh. They laughed about when yeah. This was the way. I'm not a huge karaoke person, or as my <laughs> Japanese American friends would want me to pronounce it properly, because <laughs> Emmy would say karaoke. But I had a huge party. We, I graduated from law school. We had this big party, and I was singing karaoke, and it was like a family there. And people are like, "What?" I was like, "As a black man in this society, it meant something for me to get that credential." Mm-hmm. And that was part of why I went to law school as well. Wow. So I'm curious how you thought about that and processed that. Yeah, very similar, right? For me, growing up, you know, poor and black in this community, you know, when we are thinking about what does upward mobility look like for black and brown folks, medicine law, I wasn't, mm-hmm. I wasn't in the math, so I couldn't go to the medical school, <laughs> right? I couldn't count well. Um, so I went to law school. Um, I always had this thirst for justice. And I think that in retrospect, I realized that I was misinterpreting it. Like I was very right about my passion, you know, the passion for understanding how to create a more just society, right? How to understand these systems so that we can build them up in a way that is more reflective of our 21st century needs, right? Of our more equitable society needs. And in my head, the only option for someone like me that I ever learned about was law school. So it wasn't very long and I don't regret law school. Law school was really important to me, particularly mm-hmm. because I went to Howard, right? I went to Howard yeah. where I was for the first time in my life, not the one, not the only, right? I didn't have to be the mm-hmm. representation of the entire black race. You know, when I was there and I was around other black folks and black educators who had this knowledge base and these passions and this network. And it was incredibly important for me. And it was very shaping, you know, for my life experiences. But I realized really quickly that I didn't want to practice law because it wasn't addressing the system. And what I would felt like I was called to do was to address systems, to address institutions. Otherwise, we would be litigating the same cases over and over and over and over. So I got my law degree and for, you know, you're right, that Esquire gets us in the rooms that otherwise we wouldn't have gotten into. And I'm grateful for it. And we needed that. Yeah, it's funny. I had uh, uh, I went to Hastings Law School in California, University of California Hastings, where Kamala Harris went, which is actually a separate point. Right, you're actually going to Howard. That's something that's been totally missed in our society is the ascendance of all of these people who've gone to historically black colleges and universities. Right, I mean Kamala Harris, Stacey Abrams. I mean several people moving into these different positions. It's just kind of gone unnoticed. But you were mentioning black. Professors, I had a, my contracts law professor was uh, Professor Prince, was black guy, but the class was like first thing in the morning. It was like eight thirty in the morning, something like that, and people would always come in late. And one day he was like going off on people coming in late to class, and he was really mad about it and complaining about it. And during his thing about coming in late, I came in late to the class, so <laughs> that's one of my memories from law school. Um. So you talk about the importance of bringing this voice and this perspective. So you went, you ran for, and you were in the state house of representatives in Pennsylvania, which is not the most progressive place in the no. America. And so I'm curious what that was like and then what you tried to do as a state legislator and what, and how you navigated that experience. Oh yeah. Oh, it is not, it is not the most progressive place, right? This is, this is a legislature that has been gerrymandered to the high heavens. <laughs> you know, for decades at this point. And we have we have a Republican Party that is committed 
to being uncompromising. So I knew and I recognized that my role as a legislator, right, was to be a stopgap. It was to be focused intently on harm reduction, but also it was to use my time to move the Democratic Party. And I take flack for that. I take so much flack for that. In fact, all of the, the now $2 million attacks against me are almost always because I've offered critique of the Democratic Party, right? Which is my own party. It's that idea that you should not critique the things you don't love something or you aren't a part of something if you offer critique of it. And like James Baldwin would say, because I do, I will offer it that critique because mm -hmm. we want it to be its better self. And that's what I have invested in making it its better self. How do we make this party? How do we how do we situate our party so that we can get those victories to flip state houses, to flip Congress? Right. So that when we get there, we are ready to move on these bold policies that the people are asking us to move on. So I've spent my time really, I believe, expanding the realm of what's possible, really showing my colleagues that they can be bolder, right, that they can um, have a different perspective on criminal justice, right, or on reproductive health or on policing, right? Or all these issues that are so typically, that are typically very conservative in their, in their thinking. I've also, when I say that perspective and how important it is, I can't tell you how many times we've had pieces of legislation that look good, you know, is dressed up nice, but when you get to page two or you get to the, you know, the 25th line, you see how it would have a disparate impact on black or brown communities or queer communities or, or somehow marginalized communities. But because the room is so homogeneous, right? because it is so, everybody kind of has the same experiences, the same thoughts. They weren't able to catch those things. That's how important it is that we be in these spaces. When we talk about representation, it's not just for cosmetic changes. It's because you miss things when you don't have the whole view, when you can't see the whole picture there. And that's what I believe I've been able to do. And I've seen my colleagues move from day one to now. I've seen less colleagues voting against reproductive health and abortion care. I've seen fewer colleagues voting for mandatory minimums that we know disproportionately hurt, hurt the black community. I've seen colleagues moving on police accountability in ways that they never would have before. And I believe that that's because our progressive movement, particularly led by black and brown women, have been pushing the needle on it. On that note, Summer, I want to pivot to talking about what the response is to and that pushing the needle happens. So namely, I wanted to just give some background to the listener is that for the last several weeks, you've been the target of expensive hate campaigns sponsored by APAC. Let me just ask a quick context on APAC. So it's American Israeli Political Affairs Committee. And so it's grouping of people in this country whose primary sole mission is to defend the interest of Israel among U.S politicians by the United States support Israel, many would argue, regardless of the context of the, the balance of you know, the issues of justice, it's about Israel and defending Israel. And as a, just a parenthetical on that point, so I was on the school board in San Francisco, I was elected to the school board and I was 28. Before I had even been sworn into office, I was approached by APAC and asked if I wanted to go on a sponsored trip to Israel so that I could learn about Israel. I was representing the schools in San Francisco, nothing to do with Israel, but their level of uh, reach and intensity around trying to protect. And I think it's most progressives would agree, and even more than that, most progressives would agree that the manifestation of APAC's work has largely been on the more conservative side of the political spectrum to the extent that a more progressive Jewish organization, J Street, sprang up, uh, maybe it was even a decade ago, specifically to represent a progressive point of view around Israel. So I just wanted to offer that context. And so APAC is the grouping that has gone after 
summer with, you know, massive amounts of money to try to, to attack her. And uh, thanks for that background. And, uh, you know, I'm, I've been learning as I've been going along, but my understanding is also that they sponsor Republicans who were the Republic, you know, some of the Republicans who supported January 6th. So this is kind of kind of like what really crazy. Just, just as long as you don't support an insurrection in Israel, it's, <laughs> it's fine to support one here. Yeah. Uh, and as of May 1st, they've spent over $900,000 on ads and mailers attacking Summer, attacking you, Summer. And they've uh, spent about $100,000 in support of your primary opponent, Steve Irwin. Uh, again, so they're spending money to even support a Democrat who just to stop you. <laughs> exactly. So um, last week, Pittsburgh Mayor Ed Ganey condemned an ad from them that straight up included lies about you. And this mayor, Mayor Ed Ganey, had asked Irwin to condemn the ad and asked APEC to stop spreading lies about you. Again, you're a progressive, unapologetic black woman running in the western part of Pennsylvania, not the most progressive part you know, part of the country. You support a $15 minimum wage, the Green New Deal, Medicare for all. Again, knowing that you're the only black woman in this race, why do you think they're launching such an attack on you? And also just how have you been dealing with it? Yeah, you know, it's really difficult and it's, it's really discouraging. For the last four years, I've been committed to not doing negative campaigning precisely because if we are going to be dedicated to a movement that expands the electorate to reach our true base, right? Black and brown voters, young voters, progressive voters, right? then we can't do anything that's disenfranchising. And we know that these negative smear campaigns are disenfranchising. They make people look at that and feel discouraged. Right, right now, they're making little black and brown girls who have looked to me and seen what we've been able to accomplish. And instead of you know, seeing them swell or pride, they're making them shrink. And that's what they're, this is what they are supposed to do. This is what they're trying to do. It, I don't know that this has anything to do with Israel, right? Because they're not running ads about Israel. They're not talking about that. They're running ads right now trying to say that I'm a Republican, that I, they are running pictures of me with Marjorie Taylor Greene and Donald mm -hmm. Trump and saying that because I, a black woman, right? A democratic, the only democratic legislator in the race, you know, who stumped for Joe Biden when called upon, when my time came, showed up, right? They're trying to say that because I offer critique of the party before, or because I offer critique of Joe Biden, in a primary, they're trying to say that I trashed him and don't support his agenda, right? So they're actually going to do anything to keep progressive black women and brown women out of office. And I think that that is devastating. And it's really disingenuous when you consider that an organization that is saying that we will support Republicans who support insurrection mm -hmm. will also attack a black woman, the only black woman to have only existed, to have ever existed in Western Pennsylvania. We will attack her on not being a good enough Democrat when they are explicitly nonpartisan, right? When my opponent explicitly, you know, worked for a Republican uh, senator and donated to Pat Toomey, right? So the, the double standard and how disingenuous and how uh, bad faith their attack is, is really what is so, is so harmful because voters right now don't get to make their decision with good information. Right, right. They're so influenced that they have to make a decision based off of these lies that you cannot avoid. You cannot avoid. Well, in terms of, non-disinformation, why don't you take a second to share with us, why do you want to go to D.C.? What is it you hope to accomplish um, by being in the, in the U.S. Congress? Absolutely. Right now, I think it's so very clear, right? Bringing back to that insurrection that people talk about as if it was a one-off event and not an ongoing, you know, orchestrated effort by, you know, white nationalists in this country. This is ongoing. 
And we have a government that has stalled and really not delivered on its need and responsibility to stand for working class people. Right now, we need people who have lived experience and urgency, right? We need folks who understand how important it is to move on Medicare for all and healthcare for everybody, on prescription drug costs because they've lived it, who understand the housing crisis intimately because they've lived it, right? Who've understood, you know, our environmental justice crisis because their community is the most, one of the most polluted in the country, right? We need people who are going to stand up and fight differently because this isn't 30 years ago or 40 years ago. It's 2022 and we can't continue to offer people this comfort level that has never existed for all of us, a return to normal that was never equitable for some of us. So right now, I believe that I have a perspective that is incredibly needed and not just me, right? But that black women aren't in Congress, that there are none, that there's never been one here in Western Pennsylvania is shameful, yeah. right? That we can organize and really lift up this movement and have this moment maybe stolen from us is shameful. So right now, I think that is me and I want to go here because I actually know that I alone can't do anything. Right. And that's, that's rare, right? We get a lot of people who think that all we need is to be the smartest person in the room, you know, to be the congressperson. What we really need are people who recognize that movements get us to where we are. We need to build consensus on the outside. We need an empowered electorate. Uh, and that's the only way that we're going to get, you know, Medicare for all or housing or racial justice or economic justice movements labor movement, a, a people power movement. That's how we got the Civil Rights Act. And you know, that's how we got the Voting Rights Act. That came from movement, not Congress. Amen. Yeah. I don't, I'll, I would say, I know we need to wrap up, but I wanted to say that there are many people who you have inspired and gotten really pumped up leading into next week. And one of them, I wanted to let people know you did receive a congratulatory tweet from Cher after your um, primary victory in 2018. So I she remember was that. really jazzed about you and feeling feeling what I'm feeling right now listening to you, which is um, just some really deep inspiration and sense of hope and, you know, sense of like awe of your what you're going up against uh, all these different odds and creating a story that is not the story of a lot of the story of what this country was either built on or the story that many people are trying to tell who this country is for. And when, you know, again, this is when you had unseated in 2018, um, a 19-year incumbent, I'm sure like you were really had to draw from a lot of motivation, even for your last race. And so I'm wondering for you, you have a few more days until your primary this time around, what are the ways in which that you motivate yourself? And, you know, what do you draw from? Mm, community, right? I, I think it's my community. I think that it's so clear what our pathway forward is. It's so clear that we can't afford to accept the limitations that other people put on this country, that mm -hmm. I believe in a more expanded version of what this country can be, what the society can be. And that's what we're fighting for. So on the days where I think about the slights that I take, right? I think about these attacks that are coming in, right? Even right now from the Democratic Party that removed me from the, the website. Like I'm the only elected official who's a Democrat who is not on our Democratic, our Allegheny County Democratic website right now. What? Yeah, we just, we just found out. So the attacks are gonna keep coming. That must mean that we, gotta, we, we have something here. It's so clear that what we're building is powerful and threatening to people who have been hoarding that power, that you got one direction to go in and that's forward. Yeah, well, it's it you know as we've mentioned briefly in the podcast, we were early and longtime supporters of Stacey Abrams. As you're talking about the tax and the party and not being enthusiastic, they see how to deal with all that too. And there are lots and lots of slights and you know indignities and dismissiveness, but she persevered. And now, right, the 
people are f- fully embracing here. And so we're super optimistic and hopeful and excited to see you ascend to the United States Congress and take this energy and this passion and this leadership. And so we're so glad that you're in the race and we really appreciate your taking the time to be with us here today. I thank y'all for having me today. And, you know, we're excited too. Can't wait. Can't wait for the 18th. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to be following the news about your race every day until then. And I'm just so glad that we got a chance today to to get some of your precious time and energy to um, hear about your story and get some insight from you. So we'll just we'll be following and just thank you so much for spending time with us today and having this conversation. All right. That's all the time we have for today. Wrapping up my walk down memory lane about Western Pennsylvania. And it's uh, it's always been central to my life. And now it's going to be quite important for the country overall. So we really encourage people to get behind summer. Uh, The race is going to be next week. We're going to have a link in our show notes to where you can contribute to her campaign. Tell your friends, if you know anybody in Pennsylvania, let them know. But it's also important to get the word about um, broadly, just in general, um, to counteract these different lies on the one hand, but also just to lift up somebody who's going to be a great leader for our country. You can follow Summer on Twitter at Summer4PA. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook, or subscribing to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. And Democracy in Color is also on Instagram. You can follow us at Democracy in Color. And if you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker, support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, with our strong Midwestern roots, keep the faith.